This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. In today's rapidly changing culture, ancient liturgical tradition is not only biblical, it's essential. In Crisis of Confidence, Carl Truman analyzes how creeds and confessions can help the Christian church navigate modern concerns, particularly around the fraught issue of identity. He contends that statements of faith promote humility, moral structure, and a godly view of personhood, helping believers maintain a strong foundation amid a culture in crisis. Pick up a copy of Crisis of Confidence wherever books are sold, or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. This episode of TGC Podcast is brought to you by Crossway. Navigating the Christian life in a secular world will inevitably stir questions in the lives of thoughtful believers. In Ask Pastor John, Tony Ranke summarizes and organizes 10 years of the most insightful and popular episodes of the Ask Pastor John podcast, allowing readers to quickly and systematically access Piper's insights on hundreds of topics, including Bible reading, dating, social media, mental health, and more. Pick up a copy of Ask Pastor John wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off. You're listening to the Gospel Coalition podcast, equipping the next generation of believers, pastors, and church leaders to shape life and ministry around the gospel. Today, we bring you a breakout session on honest evangelism, how to talk about Jesus even when it's tough, with Rico Tice. This session was originally held at TGC's 2019 National Conference in Indianapolis. Welcome. Let me pray as we begin. Let's pray. Our Father God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you very much for the Lord Jesus. We pray for his honor. We're amazed, Father, that despite the depravity in our hearts, what we long for most is his glory because of the miracle that you've done. So we do pray that we'd learn something now that we can not only find feeds our souls, but is to the great good of our churches and to the lost. We pray that you'd be able to cleanse us from sin afresh and we'd be able to hear May we not be torpedoed. And Lord, we do ask again for the glory of Jesus. May your son be honoured as we think together now. Amen. Great. So the title is uh, Honest Evangelism, How to Talk About Jesus Even When It's Tough. Um, That comes from a little book that I've done here, Honest Evangelism. Um, It's gone very well. I've sold 11 copies, so it's been outstanding. And my wife says that uh, uh, the word honest and Rico Tice should not be on the same page. In fact, it was quite funny. Five years ago, I had a sabbatical. I was meant to be writing this book, and it was the Football or Soccer World Cup, so that destroyed my sabbatical. I watched that. And then we had to get together to write it, my wife and I. She's got an English major. I'm, I've got dyslexia and got a third at university, which is why I got ordained into the Anglican Church. There weren't any other career options available. And um, uh, we were sitting there for a week while her parents babysat the children and doing this book. And after five days of writing it together as she was putting it together, I said, darling, isn't this lovely? Here we are working together for the gospel. And she looked at me and she said, I hate you and I hate this book. So um, do get it. It's great. Honest evangelism. What's the toughest thing about talking about Jesus? I'm finding as I've prepared this seminar and thought about it. Interestingly, it's not the persecution. Brothers and sisters, what I find hardest is going after lost people. That's, that's the hardest thing. It's just the unrelenting labor. So I knew that the first passage in this book would be Luke 15, verses 1 to 9. 
Uh, that's the first one I quote, which is going after the lost coin and the lost sheep, and a search is launched, and there's no thought of failure because of the preciousness of what we have to go after. And I find it absolutely exhausting going after lost people. And with a for church family that gets more and more busy helping them do that, because in London, love is a four-letter word, T-I-M-E. Love is time, and we've got to pursue people. Now, why is that the case particularly? Let me just give you a context as we look at uh, evangelism in a tougher environment. This is what's happening in London. So this is here, 1954-55. Billy Graham comes to England. Here's man. Here's our sin. Here's God. And wonderfully, he preaches the cross for two months at Haringey. 40,000 people get converted. How many of them are already in church of the 40,000 that come to faith at Haringey? How many are already in church? 90% are already churchgoers. So we're a culture where the Christian faith is there. Billy says repent and believe. Where are we? I don't know how this works where you are, but I arrive at All Souls 1994. The culture's like this. So people are over here, and there are blocks in the way to coming to faith that makes it a much longer process Humanly speaking, God can open anyone's blind eyes. Number one, Christians are weird. So if you if you look at the media, if they if there's a Christian in Britain depicted on the media, he's always depicted as weird. And of course, sometimes you meet a Christian and you go, Oh my dear brother, you are weird, aren't they? I mean, you they are. And the, the BBC who are next door to us will get rid get hold of our weird people and put them on because that's the story they're telling. Secondly, the next narrative is the Christian faith is irrelevant. It's just not relevant to real life. I mean, real life is the ground floor. This is on the first floor. It's just a personal choice, a hobby. It's not real. Uh, a friend of mine was, uh, actually an American friend, was going around Salisbury Cathedral. The guide was there. And he said, this is amazing to see the Christian past of Britain. What's happening now? And the guide said, it's an irrelevance today. Shoot him. Can you believe it? That's what he said. Just irrelevant. Thirdly, it's untrue. The gospel's just not true. That's part of the narrative. It's not, it's not real. That story's being told again and again. So I was speaking on Thursday nights. We get out to Oxford Circus by All Souls. I put my dog collar on. We put up a, a sketchboard and we, 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 we'll do a two-minute presentation, put people in a crowd, hopefully get a crowd. One time I got a massive crowd. I thought, Lord, this is amazing. What a crowd. They were all there, absolutely gripped. I looked behind me. A drunk had lit my sketchboard. It was in flames behind me. <laughs> but I, there was one time I was speaking. There was a German girl there. And this German girl, she, she's laughing. And I stopped halfway through with my paintbrush. I said, why are you laughing? She said, there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And then the huge issue that we're facing, uh, Christians are homophobic. Another huge narrative in the culture, which is where people like Sam Aubrey have been so amazing with livingout.org, just saying, actually, we want to live a celibate life as we follow Jesus if we're same-sex attracted. We're determined to be celibate and live for him. But all these things are there. Now, you've got to knock these defeater beliefs over, and it takes a lot longer to get to where people were in 1954 to see their sin and to come to God. So that was often 18 months to two years. But where are we now in 2019? Well, here, people are down on, and, and I, you know, they're no longer heading towards faith. They're on the road to destruction. So uh, John Stott defined the road to destruction as defined by two things, tolerance and permissiveness. Tolerance, I can, I can think as I please. Permissiveness, I can do as I please. That's where the culture's at. 
So, what's absolutely exhausting today, and what, what, you know, what have we got to do now? What's the issue now? What's the silver bullet for us for the next 25 years in London? Without question, when it comes to evangelism, this is the key issue we've got. It's mobilizing individuals who can link their friends and get them onto that road. It is the individual. And the reason it's exhausting is it used to be when people came along to a, a guest of medical souls or a carol service, they'd come along and hear a preacher. They'd come along, they'd give their friend to the preacher, they'd hear the gospel because they've got some Christian background. When you then stood up and said that there's a Christian explored course, it's seven weeks in Mark's gospel, they would go, great, they dropped themselves in. They've been meaning to do it for 20 years. But now, this is what's so tough. We have to train the church family that the moment uh, the speaker finishes, so he's spoken for 15, 20 minutes about the gospel of Christmas, you have to then take your friend back and say to them, would you like to look at the Bible with me? What did you make of that? So they're not dropping themselves onto Christian Explored courses. They have to be followed up individually. There's an awful lot of individual Mark's gospel, one-to-one stuff that has to happen. That is far more exhausting as you're going after lost people in a culture that's more and more in disarray where they need the individual stuff. But having said that, just to say, you know, at one level, we're not all discouraged. At one level, um, things are, um, are, you know, are are quite encouraging. What's encouraging? Well, here's a survey, and I I think there's another one that's coming out that's been done in the States. This is a survey in Britain that's been done, Talking Jesus. And in this survey, it was done by Barna, done for the Church of England Evangelical Alliance, Hope UK. In this survey, uh, the country was surveyed by Barna, and they asked people, you know, how many of you have got a Christian friend that you like? Now, the media would tell us that we think, oh, it's 15, 20% we're in a minority. Answer in Britain, 67% of people have got a Christian friend they like. Why do you like them? I like them because they're selfless. So when you're training your people, I'm sure it's the same here. In fact, the, the survey I heard is going to be published in the The first thing I've got to do is encourage them, saying, keep sacrificing yourself, keep loving them, keep reaching out. So of that 67% who've got a Christian friend they like, which was way more than we thought, we didn't believe that. I gave £750 of my own money. Now I lose my reward in heaven. Um, to get it really done, because I didn't believe it, because I knew how important that was as a stat. 67% have got a Christian friend they like. Of that 67%, what percentage of them want to know more about Jesus? Answer, 20%, which is 7.5 million people. So as I'm thinking of the gospel in England, I'm going, okay, there are 7.5 million people who, if asked... Would like, to, would like to have someone open the Bible with them. But here's the issue, and this is what's tough. You're going to get 80% rejection from people who like you, but they're going to go no. And what my church family are longing for is that they want people to come up to them and say, would you look at the Bible with me and could you show me Jesus? But that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. Now, here's a big line. And everyone, can you jot this line down now? Because this is a line we've got to do. You've got to cross the pain line and ask them. So in London, the big thing is, do you celebrate Christmas? That's the first word evangelistically. But another one is, would you like to look at the Bible with me? 
Now, in order to cross that pain line, this is another key to speaking about Jesus. And here's the word we've got to do. Brothers and sisters, you've got to have your identity in the grace of God. Evangelism is about identity. So jot this down. Whether Here's the issue. Uh, whether you accept or reject me doesn't make me more valuable. What makes me valuable is Christ died for me. And I remember Tim Keller using an illustration when he said, do you remember those old Coke machines? You'd, you'd put 50 cents in and have to bang it and bang it on a station and eventually it would come out. He said, it's like that. That goes in here, the grace of God, but is it going to come down and come out? So the 7.5 million people are there. They're lost sheep, but actually they're hungry. We've got to go after them. Just to say another issue on the issue of homophobia, and this is huge. Of that 67%, you've got a Christian friend they like. What percentage of them think that Christian friend that they like is homophobic? And again, if you look at the church, because we've been brainwashed by the media, people would say, well, 50%, 70%. Brothers and sisters, 6% of that 67% think the Christian friend they like is homophobic. So we've repented of that. It doesn't mean we're not orthodox. There are four same-sex attracted couples on my street. We keep the keys for two of them. We're friends. They call me the 18th century preacher. That's what they all call me. <laughs> we're mates because, because we're loving and serving. But that, that's just a huge issue there in terms of that. So let's not be, let's not, be knocked over by the, the constant narrative from the media that we are homophobic when that has been repented of. So, okay, as we look forward and as we go forward, how are we, how are we looking to, 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 to progress um, in terms of what's happening? Well, one of the problems that we've got, um, whether our identity is in the gospel or not, is that the church in Britain, and again, I can't speak of what's happening over here, but the church in Britain is losing its nerve because it's listening to this narrative uh, of, of um, uh, uh, the culture drying up. And, uh, and walking away from scripture and, 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 and what's happening. So at the moment in Britain, you might want to jot these down. There are four responses to our times. I don't know if you can relate to them, but how are we responding to tougher times to a more secular environment? One section of, of the church and of, of church leaders, their motto is we've got to recover where we were. So they look back they look back and they say, we've just got to, we, you know, we, 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 we've got to recover where, where we were before. They wring their hands and perhaps they'll make wrong alliances as they're looking for that. But All Souls, my church, Central London, we used to be on the front of the Radio Times that had a circulation of 11 million. We were orthodox and loved. The question we've got to ask now is, are we going to be orthodox and hated? But one lot, they, they want to recover it. And all they can do is look back and grieve what's happening at the moment. The second uh, issue we've got, obviously, is retreat. So there's a great temptation in the evangelical church in Britain to retreat from the culture because it'll corrupt and contaminate particularly my children. So the line is back to the monastery. The confidence is gone. So those churches might do some social action for which they're applauded, but they're not doing evangelism. What's, set, what's interesting here is in many of their narratives, now this is key, they separate holiness from evangelism. So they don't see that right at the center of being godly, of being like God, is going after lost people. And, and you might want to jot this down. This is their narrative. My faith is a personal, private thing. It helps me in my life. I wouldn't dream of imposing it on other people. 
And with that, they, they're retreating from the culture. They're not prepared to say uh, uh, the tough things. The confidence has gone. What we've got to see is that at the heart of being like God is that we go after lost people. For God so loved the world, he sent his son. But that's been lost. In many of our fine churches, people have, a, have, a, have an understanding of holiness and attending many meetings and perhaps doing training, but it's separate from doing evangelism. And here's the issue, crossing the pain line. Because there is, a, there is when, when you're looking to say, do you want to look at the Bible with me? Can I invite you for Christmas? When you're looking to get to that, there is a pain line that we cross. So number one, there's recover. Thirdly, there's retreat. Third, uh, secondly, there's retreat. The third R is obviously reconcile with the culture. That sadly is what Archbishop Welby is doing. I'm an Anglican. He's trying to reconcile with the culture. His motto is all the churches must flourish and therefore he's trying to um, help uh, profound false teaching flourish. But the word here, of course, is that we will accommodate uh, the word of God to the culture in order to fit in with it. So we'll rub away the sharp edges. Uh, What defines whether I'm faithful to the gospel in Britain? Two words, wrath, 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 wrath and repentance. Two R's, do jot them down, wrath and repentance. So number one, God's wrath, God's settled, controlled, personal hostility to evil. Is that being preached? So the biggest problem with my sin is that it makes God angry. That's the issue. And that his anger has to be assuaged. And that will either happen at the cross or I'll pay for my sin myself in a place called hell, which is eternal torment. So there is only one way to get to hell. You have to trample over the cross of Jesus. And here's the thing on God's wrath. It's a good thing, brothers and sisters, because it means how I treat you matters to God and how you treat me matters to God and how we treat the world matters to God. Wrath is great. We have to say, no, I don't apologize for the judgment of God. There's going to be justice done. My twin sister worked in South Africa. That's why I'm so sensitive to women. I was in the womb with a girl. But um, my twin sister worked in South Africa for 14 years. And a couple came to her and said, our daughter was raped and murdered. The boy that did it was out of prison after 18 months. We thought our little girl was worth more than that. Now, doesn't something rise up in you? That should not be the case. God's wrath is that in his world, he won't sweep evil under the carpet. Secondly, repentance. What is repentance? It means that I'm for what Jesus is for, and I'm against what Jesus is against. That's repentance. Whatever he's for, I'm against. I trust him. He died for me. Whatever he's against, I'm against. So are we we doing those things? And and the, the, the... Time and again, they're trying to reinterpret the faith, um, particularly over human sexuality. Here is Justin Welby speaking. He gave an interview reported in the Evangelical uh, uh, um, uh, uh, News. Uh, Justin Welby uh, uh, was asked by a non-Christian reporter, is gay sex sinful? He replied, you know very well that's a question I can't give a straight answer to. Brother, yes, you can. The interview transcript then states, pause, mildly embarrassed, pressed on why he couldn't give an answer. He said, because I don't do blanket condemnation. I haven't got a good answer to the question. I'll be really honest about that. And of course, what happens is if the leaders aren't clear, then it puts cowardice into everyone. So where you are, now here's the key. Two things. One, as I'm responding on that issue, I've got to get my tone right. If you're, I mean, Keller's tone is great. You've got to have the right tone as you speak on that issue. If they, if they can see in our tone there's an anger and a vitriol, we've got to have a loving tone. And secondly, I've got to believe in the Holy Spirit. So as I speak on that, I do that. 
But I just speak very simply. I just say, look, I don't know whether you've come across a livingout.org. These are same-sex attracted Christian men and women who are saying, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, I am determined to be celibate. Will you allow them to have a safe place in the culture where they can live and, and, and flourish? So, But what we've got to do is push back and ask the questions on that. But they're too afraid to do that, the culture. They're reinterpreting. They're afraid the church will become irrelevant. And here's the issue. If I don't hold faithfully, brothers and sisters, this is huge. If I don't hold faithfully, it's very simple. The Holy Spirit departs the ministry. That's what's at stake. You see, what's at the heart of our evangelism? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, we preach Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, as we do that, God opens blind eyes. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, do you remember? The God uh, 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 who made the world, he shines his light out of darkness into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So as I preach Christ, God sends his power, he does a miracle, he opens blind eyes, and he gets people to see that Jesus is God. So the moment of conversion is a moment of recognition. It's a moment of identification. But with evangelism, unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So I've got to be faithful. I mustn't, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 2, distort the word of God. Because if I do that, the spirit departs. Revelation, I'll remove my lampstand. So those of you who are thinking of not being faithful on that issue, please understand the spirit departs. I spoke in an Episcopal church on, Saturday, on Sunday evening. It has been sold to the Presbyterians and shut down because, because it, you know, in, in, it was uh, back in Pennsylvania. Why has that happened? Fundamentally, let me tell you why. Because the Spirit leaves if we're not faithful, because he's the Holy Spirit. That's what's at stake here. If I don't keep telling the truth, the Spirit departs. And if he is not there, we can't have the miracle of conversion, which requires the power that made the world. So for your notes, what's our methodology in evangelism? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 5, we preach Christ. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, God opens blind eyes. And the mountain is that God opens blind eyes. And I can't expect him to do that if I'm distorting the word of God. Fourth, what then are we to do if we're to remain faithful? What's the fourth R? What's the R that, that, that we must win? It's not recover. It's not retreat. It's not reconcile to the culture. Here's the key word, resilience. If I'm going to keep preaching Christ and living for him, resilience is the key. And I mean, you know, there, 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 there are lots of definitions of it. The ability to anticipate, withstand and bounce back from external pressures. Resilience. The power or ability to return to the original form. The capacity to recover quickly from difficulties. But what's happened in Britain is that we have moved from Athens, where what we had to do was articulate and defend our faith, to Babylon, where you just need guts. You just got to hold the line. And again, keep your tone gracious, trust in the Holy Spirit to do his work. Now, in the light of that, what does that mean, resilience? What am I praying for as an evangelist? Here, are the, here is what I'm praying for. Do jot this down. Please take this back to your churches. I think this is the heart of what we're saying. The heart of what we're saying, what we have to cultivate for evangelism today is this. We've got to cultivate soft hearts and tough skins. I need a soft heart. Why do I need a soft heart? Because I represent a God who is reaching for people. And the gospel's amazing. 
so, so Lindsay Brown says, the two things that keep me amazed by the gospel are, I've got to know it's true and I've got to know it's wonderful. But it is wonderful. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were his enemies, he came and sought us. It's amazing, the gospel. When I think of my depravity, and yet he gives me this gift of righteousness. So I need a soft heart. Secondly, a tough skin. Because I've got to keep proclaiming Christ. Why? Because of the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I I do not have permission to not communicate in the Christian faith. I've got to do that, particularly because I'd like to give you this as a mission statement. This is from Bishop Frank Retief. Could I ask you to take this back to your churches as a mission statement? How does this go? This is my personal mission statement. It's how I organize my life. And I think it happens because I come from a non-Christian home. So if you come from a non-Christian home, you bury people who you love most and they die without Christ. And people who come from Christian homes, it's an amazing privilege, but you don't get it sometimes. You don't get the agony of it. I remember my brother bursting into tears at my grandmother's funeral. We're the only two Christians in the family. And she died saying, I'm a good person. God will accept me because I'm good. So she's in God's hands, but I have little hope I'll see her again. My brother burst into tears. And so what's the mission statement that I I think we need in our churches to keep us going on it? Here's the mission statement. People without Christ go to hell. So we organize our lives and our churches around that. We keep that priority. People without Christ go to hell. And Bishop Frank Retief in South Africa in Cape Town, he makes his clergy organize their diaries around that, around lost people. So I've got to have a soft heart and a thick skin. And the thick skin, of course, too, is also for conflict within the church. Because when I say to people, people without Christ go to to hell, and I'm trying to mobilize my church family, they find that pretty outrageous. Because they want their faith to be a personal, private thing that helps them in their life. They want it to be more than that. And I'm saying to them, here's a line, where will they be in 100 years' time? Your neighbors. Are we not functional universalists? Now, again, we've got to do it with a smile. We've got to be for them, but we've got to be asking these questions to keep the evangelism value high. (sighs) Okay, how am I self-managing myself then if I'm to be doing this? Uh, So I just have a little outline here that I I just use that's just a, a little outline to keep myself going in a culture that's getting tougher to keep myself going after lost people. So, so um, uh, what have we got here? Just four dots, really. Up here, top right, is my thinking. Here are my feelings. Feelings! You know what, the English don't really happen, but I thought I'd mention them. <laughs> Thirdly, choices. I'm just pretending, I don't really have them. And physical health. And then, this is my environment here. This is what comes into it. So you can get hit hard on a... I did a mission recently at at a boarding school in England. And because of what I've said on the internet about the Bishop of Liverpool, um... Uh, Paul Bayes uh, uh, became patron of Gay Pride Liverpool, and I resigned from the Archbishop's Task Force on Evangelism in protest of that. Having been to see him and ask him to repent and not do that, he led the Gay Pride March. I resigned. I was interviewed uh, about that um, with the um, at GAFCON, which is the new Anglican worldwide church that is being formed that's orthodox, led in this country by Foley Beach. 
because of that statement, when I went to give a, do a mission at a school um, uh, a couple of months ago, there were gay pride posters all over the school. Uh, there, were, there were protests by the pupils. Um, do you know when you're 11, you walk around and you think everyone's thinking about me, but it's not true. I was 52 and I thought, no, they really are all thinking about me. <laughs> and then last week, I was, I was going to speak at Parliament at Christmas at their Easter service. And again, my, the invitation was withdrawn because of what I've said online. So I'm trying to self-manage in all of this. How do I do that? Well, first of all, in my thinking, as I'm trying to lead myself uh, as the conflict uh, gets bigger, in my thinking, what I've got to do is make sure that the gospel is wonderful. So I ask myself these four questions. Could you jot them down? Question one in my identity. Question one, I ask myself, when was I converted? So first thing in the morning, I'm, I'm getting my heart up. I'm getting my thinking right. When was I converted? And the answer is, of course, Ephesians 1, 3 and 4, before the beginning of time. I was converted. Before. Do you think that makes you valuable? So every morning I say to myself, Rico, you fat ape, when were you converted? (laughs) And I was converted before the beginning of time. Do you know, it makes me blub this. Honestly, I I find it amazing. But it is Ephesians, isn't it? Ephesians 1 verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship. It's amazing, isn't it? So before Isaiah, before the beginning of time, he wrote my name on his hands. I was full against him, absolutely self-obsessed. And he sent his Holy Spirit, turned me round, brought him to himself, filled me with his spirit, has given me worthwhile things to do. And one day I'll stand before God and he'll say, Rico, it's good to see you. You've been on my mind a very long time. (coughs) When was I converted before? Do you know that never fails to lift me? Second question to ask, how does God feel about me? Answer, he's delighted with me. Why is he delighted with me? Oh, brothers and sisters, because he's delighted with Jesus. And I now relate to God through Christ's performance, not my own. So Martin Luther, you know the story. He went into the monastery and he said, I hated God because he demanded a righteousness from me and all I saw was wickedness. And then he had his tower experience with Romans 1, 16 and 17. And he suddenly realized now a righteousness from God is revealed. And he said, I saw that the essence of the Christian faith was not a righteousness we give to God. It's one we receive from him. So, so here we go. This is, this is something that I'm, I, I, I constantly have. I don't know if you can see this. This is a diary. It's everything I've ever done wrong. And I wonder if you can see every page is blank. Because Christ doesn't just die for my sin, he also gives me his life of righteousness. So Gresham Machen on his deathbed, remember what he said? I thank God for the obedience of Jesus. And therefore, in my life, as I'm rejected, please jot this down, I don't live for approval, but from it. I don't live for approval, but from it. Number three, why is today a better day than yesterday? Today's a better day than yesterday because I'm a day's march closer to heaven, to seeing Jesus face to face. And for the non-Christian, it's a worse day, brothers and sisters, because they're a day's march closer to hell. That's reality. But I'm a day's march closer to seeing him face to face. Won't that be a joy? And then, and then uh, 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 the next one, you know, uh, why is today a great day? Why is today a great day? Romans, 1, Romans 8, 28, 29. Why is it a great day? 
today's a great day because God has planned today for my good. And if it's good for God, it's good for me. So what is my good? He's working all together things for my good. Romans 8, 29, that he's going to conform me to the likeness of Christ. So whatever happens to me today, God has planned it to make me more like Christ. My father just died of dementia about 18 months ago, but he had violent dementia. So at one point he had a police escort from an old people's home. It was brutal. And, uh, and, you know, I could just feel the Lord transforming me as I cared for my dad and his dementia and, and his lostness. But in all things, he's working together for my good. So there are only two things in the Christian life. Number one, I'm going to heaven where I'll see Jesus face to face and be in the new creation. On the way, I've got to be godly. So whatever situation I'm in, whatever hits my circumstances, Parliament saying you're not coming to speak or whatever it is, kids at a school putting up LGBT posters all over it, whatever it is, it's for my godliness. What does it mean to be godly now? Lord Jesus, please show me, help me. So those are the four questions I ask myself each day as, as I'm going out. And the model here is Charles Simeon. And John Piper's book on Simeon is great, the little um, uh, uh, volume he's written, The Roots of Endurance. Now, Simeon was a single uh, 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 pastor in Cambridge about 150 years ago. And um, uh, uh, just to say how much, just how much endurance he needed... The pews in his church were shut in the morning for the first 12 years because the pew holders were so offended by the gospel. They rented the pews, they kept them, but they wouldn't sit there, wouldn't let anyone else. So if you visited, you had to sit in the aisles. In the afternoon, the pews were opened, but they paid another man to go and preach in his church. 12 years of that. At one point, one of the dons from Cambridge, from his college, walked around the quad with him and Simeon said, I couldn't believe he associated with me. So hated was he. At another point, a mob were there to stone him, probably to death, and he fortunately left by the back door. He was constantly ill. Uh, he had a, 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 a collapse health-wise after 25 years, but he stayed. His brother left him a vast amount of money. He gave it all away. By his death, 12% of the clergy of England, 12% had come through his hands. Amazing. How did he endure? And here's the phrase. He said, I grow downwards. In other words, in his morning quiet time, now this is how we cope under pressure. He went down into his sin. He went down, down into his depravity. And he saw his sin. And then he saw the goodness of grace and God. And then he saw, and then he was overwhelmed with joy. And so you see, the joy of the Lord is my strength. If I lose my joy, I lose my strength. And then he'd come out the next day, having been smashed all day the previous day, he'd come out and he would be full of bonhomie and love for people around him. And the young men saw it and they were converted in droves. I've got a mate of mine who's a missionary in Japan. And, and he, asked, he asked one man, he said, why are the young men not becoming clergy? Why aren't they becoming pastors? And the guy replied, Look at the old men. They're miserable. The old pastors are miserable. So our weapon is our joy. Now, this is where John Piper's been so good. You read the life of Wilberforce. Again, overwhelming joy amidst unrelenting opposition. But that happens because, brothers and sisters, we plunge down into our own depravity each morning. We see the goodness of God. We're reminded of the gift of righteousness. We're filled with joy by the Spirit. So the biggest problem you've got is if you forget how sinful you are. That's how you start to fail. 
if you harden your heart to that. So this is Alf Stanway preaching in this country, uh, our Australian bishop, to some young ordinands in Pittsburgh in 1950. But he said this, If other people knew you like God knows you, all your faults, all your vain thoughts, all your sins, all the things in your heart, all the wrong thoughts you ever had, would they trust you with the kind of work God trusts you with? Here is the supreme confidence that God has in his own grace. He'll take the like of you and me and give us the privilege of being his saints. It's amazing he trusts us with gospel work when I think of the depravity. So if you could see how my heart worked, you would not bother listening. And if I could see how your heart worked, I wouldn't bother speaking. (laughs) So you remember Jack Miller. If the pastor is not the chief repenter, sin becomes a theoretical issue for theoretical sinners should there be any present that Sunday morning. I can't believe the kindness of God to allow me to have a ministry when I think of my depravity and self-centeredness. Simeon wrote this in his memoirs. With this sweet hope of ultimate acceptance with God, I've always enjoyed much cheerfulness before men, but I have at the same time laboured incessantly to cultivate the deepest humiliation before God. I've never thought that the circumstances of God's having forgiven me was any reason why I should forgive myself. On the contrary, I've always judged it better to loathe myself the more in proportion as I was assured that God was pacified towards me. There are but two objects that I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness and the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Piper writes, beneath the form of his endurance was a life of prayer and meditation that drew resources for battle from some deeper place. Both his prayer and meditation were essentially to tap the grace of God. One of the marks of our, our time, Piper writes, is emotional fragility. We pout and mope easily. We blame easily. Our marriages break easily. How do you survive and thrive in a face of opposition and criticism? Answer, Simeon would say, go to the valley of humiliation. So here's the cycle that will sustain me as I keep going. I, 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 I see my sin. I see God's grace. I'm overwhelmed with joy. I go out to train and disciple. And the disaster is if I just get up to train and disciple without doing this first. It's absolutely disastrous. So in London, we find there are three questions we've got to ask all Christian workers. Number one, do you have a daily quiet time? Where do you go to rejoice afresh in the grace of God? Please pray for me that I'll read my Bible. I find it a struggle. It never happens automatically. I'd cover your prayers. I do that. Not least because I've got a three-year-old called Mercy. She lives under the stairs. We don't have enough room in our two-bedroom flat. We've got three kids. So she's under the stairs like Harriet Potter. She's under the stairs. And in the morning, she puts out her head, you know, what is it, quarter past six. Morning, daddy, daddy, daddy. My wife, she never wakes my wife because my wife is so good at playing dead, she could work, work for the CIA. So she puts it out there. Do you know, she's a bit like Jack, Jack Nicholas in the, in the Shining. She puts her head out, there, morning, daddy. So, you know, try and read your Bible before that. I mean, as I sit and say, look, please pray I'll be reading my Bible. We've got to read our Bibles. It's funny calling her Mercy, of course. It means on the street, I go, Mercy, where are you? Bring Mercy here. It's a ridiculous name. Welcome if you're called Mercy. Lovely to have you. 
Simeon was invariably arose every morning, though it was, it was the winter season uh, at four o'clock. And after lighting his fire, he devoted the first four hours of the day to private prayer and devotional study. You know, it's amazing. And, 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 and that, so I've got to do that. The next thing I've got to do on my feelings here is I've got to know the archaeology of my own brokenness. As I look at the people in, in England who have capitulated, I think they're not aware of their own busness and their idols. We've got to do our own idols. For the first 10 years at All Souls, when I was on staff with John Stott, it was great to be on staff with him. He was a great man. He got up at 10 to 5 each, each morning and slept for half an hour each afternoon. I myself adopted one of those two habits. And, um, and, and you know, th- th- this issue, this issue of, 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 of working with him, what I found was for the first 10 years at All Souls, I would lie to people barefaced about whether I'd done something because I wanted to be seen as a fine Christian worker. And fine Christian workers are efficient. They're godly. They, they get back to people. I wasn't efficient. I was the first person at All Souls who was an assistant to be given a full-time assistant. She's called Grace, so I'm literally saved by Grace. But anyway, <laughs> but, 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 but I would say, you'd say to me, Rico, have you done it? And I'd say yes, and I hadn't done it, and I'd run off and do it before you found out. Why was I doing that? Because my idol was to be seen as a fine Christian worker, which is a good thing, but it became a God thing. Now, we've got to know what our idols are. How do we do that? Jot the two questions down, please. This is what diagnoses our evangelism. Number one, what are my daydreams? Secondly, what are my nightmares? They will reveal our idols. And so often in our churches, I mean, Keller says this, isn't it? Our our faith isn't in God. Our faith's in our agenda for God. I remember standing at the back of All Souls 10 years ago. A woman came running out and she said to me, tell my daughter, tell my daughter to apply for Oxford University. And I looked at her. And the daughter came out, and we exchanged a look, which was, your mother's a nutter. You know, she's a nutter. (laughs) What had she been praying about for the last hour and a quarter in church? So if you don't have your idols sorted out, you are going to capitulate under pressure. You've got to know where they come from. Uh, my dad grew tobacco in Africa. We were in Chile first, then Africa. And um, uh, we came, my brother and I came over to boarding school uh, in Britain when we were, when I was eight. And uh, uh, I then got converted when I was uh, 16. And after I got converted, um, the, the pressure at the school was enormous um, on the Christians. There were 10 of us. And uh, um, they would write magazines every month that attacked us personally. I actually don't have the emotional capacity to read it. But they laid down some stuff in my head in terms of pressure. And I know, there are bombs in my head, and I know, I know when they go off. And my not wife knows when they go off when I'm under pressure. So in terms of down here, my feelings, I, 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 I've got a map, and my wife has a map on the, on, the, on the busted stuff. If you go to an English boarding school for 10 years, they teach you three things. Number one, you're not good enough. So you're away from the unconditional love of home. It's conditional love. You're not good enough. Prove yourself it's a dangerous world. I knew it was a dangerous world. The prefect in my dorm when I was eight got into bed with the prefect in the next door dorm. So I know the archaeology of that. I know where I'm busted. Um, I've done work on anger and things like that. So that, so that, so that there's a, so many of the pastors that break don't have, that haven't done the work internally. When I was 21, there was a Scottish psychiatrist at the church I was working at. I was a church 
uh, a student worker, he said to me, you'll need to see me in your late 30s, you'll be fine till then. When I'm 37, I have a, I have a disastrous broken engagement, which conservatively speaking was 95% my fault. And, um, uh, um, and, and I went and saw him but what was amazing was he put himself in place for me to see him then. And I unpacked so much stuff that means now when the pressure's on, I'm aware of it. Brother, sister, are you? Do, does your partner know what the archaeology is, how, where you go under pressure? Because we've got to know that stuff. Um, I found a, a, this book here by Podesky, Mind Over Mood. Just, you know, uh, uh, what happens, situation, moods, automatic thoughts, evidence that supports hot thoughts, evidence that doesn't support them, alternative balanced thinking. And I'm getting the gospel into that thinking. The next thing is, of course, is that when we're under pressure, we've got to work at our own personal godliness. So on choices here, there are two areas I'm constantly aware I've got, because the tone is so important. So first of all, anger. Every morning in my, in my Bible in a year, so I've got a, I don't know where I put it, here we are, I've got my Bible in a year, and I have my, I have the verses here on anger, and I go through them each morning. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on, any, uh, uh, on, you, on your anger while you're still angry. Like a city without walls is a man who lacks self-control. And I pray in those verses. Then I pray in other verses about lust. Be sure your sin will find you out. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully will already, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do you know that your, uh, that your bodies are, are, are members of Christ himself? You were bought at a price, therefore honour God with your body. You're not your own. He who sins sexually sins against his own body. And I go through those two. On anger, I have an R call, which is A, acknowledge it. Uh, uh, first of all, say, oh gosh, I'm quite angry. Something's hit my environment and makes me angry. Secondly, absorb it. Okay, Rico, just step back. Why are you cross? Thirdly, respond. But if I'm going to teach the Bible, I can't afford to be losing my temper, James chapter 3. So how are we self-managing in those two areas? Each morning I have those verses I go through because the thing is, in the battle, it's personal godliness that is absolutely key in terms of going forward. So that's where, where, where I am on that. And then, of course, lastly, physical health up here. Uh, uh, am I taking a day off? So... So, you know, am I having a quiet time? Am I regularly with non-Christians? But thirdly, am I having a day off? Brothers and sisters, let me tell you about your day off. Okay, this is in terms of maintaining yourself under pressure. We don't break God's laws, they break us. So if you don't take a day off, you will be broken. God has given us that law. Brother, sister, do it. Because if you have to pick people up who haven't taken their day off, it's just agony. Roger Carswell, an evangelist in the north of England, said to me, he said, Rico, I kept on missing my day off. And then you know what happened? I had to take all the days I'd missed together. <laughs> so be ruthless on this, on the day off. And if you don't take your day off, it's an issue of God's sovereignty. You don't seem to understand it's his work, not yours. So there we are. And, and we've got to look in the, in the mirror. We've got to manage ourselves uh, in those ways. I find wonderful for it all is the Valley of Vision. Uh, the Puritan's book, The Valley of Vision, absolutely fantastic in terms of self-leadership um, on that. And so just as we draw to a close, what I'd like to do is read you a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Um, I find as I read these in the mornings, they're overwhelming in terms of allowing me to grow downwards into my sin and to come out as someone with real joy. And then I'm longing to look out the window and put my arms around people. So here it is. 
Thou eternal God, thine is surpassing greatness, unspeakable goodness, superabundant grace. I can as soon count the sands of the ocean's lip as number thy favours towards me. I know but a part, but that part exceeds all praise. I thank thee for personal mercies, a measure of health, preservation of body, comforts of house and home, sufficiency of food and clothing, continuance of mental powers, the delights of domestic harmony and peace, the seats now filled that might have been vacant, my country church Bible faith. But oh, how I mourn my sin in gratitude vileness, the days that add to my guilt, the scenes that witness my offending tongue, all things in heaven, earth, around, within, without condemn me, the sun which sees my mid-deeds, the darkness which is like to thee, the cruel accuser who justly charges me, the good angels who've been provoked to leave me, thy countenance which scans my secret sins, thy righteous law, thy holy word, my sin-soiled conscience, my private and public life, my neighbours, myself, all write dark things against me. I deny them not, frame no excuse, but confess, Father, I've sinned. Yet still I live and fly repenting to thy outstretched arms. Thou wilt not cast me off, for Jesus brings me near. Thou wilt not condemn me, for he died in my stead. Thou wilt not mark my mountains of sin, for he levelled all, and his beauty covers my deformities. Oh my God, I bid farewell to sin by clinging to his cross, hiding in his wounds and sheltering in his side. How do we face opposition and keep going? We grow downwards. We see our sin, we see the wonder of grace, we're overwhelmed with joy. Then as we meet people, we can, number one, celebrate them. God has sovereignly put them on our streets in our lives. Celebrate them, ask them questions. Secondly, serve them. What's their biggest pressure? That's the second to do. You know, uh, the rest of the country is turning their back on individuals. We look to serve. Thirdly, cross the pain line. Do you want to come to church? Can I look at the Bible with you? How about coming to, for Christmas? You know, it, there is that sense of, 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 of just there'll be a pain line to cross. Fourthly, exit. So Matthew 10, verse 14, if they're quiet, you go quiet. Rub the sun's, dust off your feet. What does that mean? It means if they go quiet, you go quiet. If they come back as you've asked them something, you keep chatting with them. So celebrate, serve, ask a tough question, ask them along maybe to Christian Explored, but my identities in, in Christ, if they accept or reject. And then lastly, dust off your feet. Exit. If they, if they don't want to know, go on going back to celebrate and serving. Let's pray as we close. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you so much for the grace of God. We pray that you would enable, to, enable us to lead ourselves deeply into what you've done for us and that we then be men and women of profound joy and then with that joy we'd be able to like Simeon, bounce out and love the world. Lord, you've loved us so much. We pray that you'd fill our hearts with your spirit and enable us to be great encouragers to the church family and great seekers after lost people. Amen. I think we might have time for one or two questions, uh, but as we're getting to them, you filled out your surveys, your chance to win a number of uh, great resources here. Pass them off to your left, uh, to the left side, and we'll uh, pick them up here and then draw for one right away here. Here's your opportunity. And so as those are being passed over, why don't we have a first question uh, come up here to Rico. So just yell it out. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, the, 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 the big follow-up thing that we've had to do, so we started with Christianity Explored 25 years ago, and that was amazing because it does Mark's gospel in three words. So it's the identity, the mission, and the call of Jesus. And you can find that every verse in Mark's gospel is about either who he is, why he came, what it means to follow him. But then listening to Tim Keller in New York and again, examining the idolatry in my family, which was good things that become God things, we wrote Life Explored. Now, I think the way in with the millennials is you've got to show them how sin is killing them from underneath. They ignore law breaking, but if you can do idolatry and they start seeing it, then you create the hunger for grace and the cross. So we've done, we've done these studies, which are films which show people worshipping their idols. And then we do a little outline that goes through uh, uh, the Bible. So, so what I'm trying to do them is get them to see the desperate nature of their sin when they're blind to law-breaking. So that's what, that's what I found. I found that if people can start seeing their idols, actually they, they can start getting hungry. So that's what, I mean, that, that's, that's, that's really what we've done. We, we spent loads of money trying to do these films and then people sit there and they suddenly see themselves in the films. Then we do the studies through, um, through the Bible. We do an overview of God's character. Does that, I don't know if that's any good, but, but that's, we'll, we'll chat again. That'd be great. Yep. Yeah, just, just to say, brother, we, we do cycle through them, but the big issue is getting people to the series. That's what's exhausting. So three times a year, spring, summer, and fall, we have two weeks where the church stops. There are evangelistic services. There are lots of events. And then, it, you know, obviously, I mean, the one I love running is Christian Explored because I just love going through Mark's gospel. I mean, I, I think that you just let the gospel tell the gospel. So the trouble is I keep wanting to run it, but I keep getting told we've got to do other stuff. But we, we, Life Explored is great for showing idolatry. But I think the big thing is getting into the DNA of the church. Look, twice a year, maybe spring and fall, or three times a year, we're going to stop and do it. So the battle is always getting non-Christians to come. Um, often, yeah, we won't run two Christian Explorers after each other because we'll, we'll put the non-Christians onto the next course. Again, the key there is the individuals who hold on to them and bring them to the course. Okay, before the next question, let's draw our first thing. Tell us a little bit about finding more this book. Yeah, these are these are people who went through Christian Explored, so it's just Mark's gospel. And and it and what's great about this as an evangelistic book is they articulate often the reservations people have got about the church. So there's the the same-sex attracted person who got converted and the, the, her feelings of homophobia about the church. There's the uh, cynical banker who just thought Christians don't look at evidence. Um, there's the, the, the person who suffered a, a, a great deal. So you've just got different stories that often incarnate people's reservations, but that's much better coming out of a life. James, how much is this? Seven seventy-nine. All right. Pick, pick somebody to win this. Here we go. Never trust the English. Oh, it's my name. How wonderful. Uh, Bob Stanberg. All right. Bob. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Bob. Nice to see you.
see you, brother. All right, let's do, uh, let's talk about here, Honest Evangelism. This is the new cover. So he was holding up an old cover. This is the Honest yeah. Evangelism book, um, and it's available also at the Good Book Company. Stop by there, of course, 80 or 40% off. Naomi Lopez. <laughs> Naomi. All right. Naomi, well done. And uh, we'll give somebody a choice of Christianity Explored, Life Explored, or Discipleship Explored. Do you want to just briefly mention what these are? And yeah. you know, normally $60. They're $35 right now, $35.99. This is, this is the overview of Mark's Gospel. It's being used by Prison Fellowship. Um, so we're, we're just thrilled they've, they've picked up the material in the prisoner's journey. In about 120 countries, it just does Mark in three words. Uh, who is he? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? There are DVDs and videos. I made sure with the DVDs they digitally removed my double chin. But um, uh, um, so um, but again, just a lovely walk through Mark's gospel, and then you learn that you hear the Bible from the front in a small group, one to one as the leaders chat, and you take it home to read it for yourself. So just getting people really stuck into Mark's gospel. Um, uh, this is the life explored one I just mentioned, which is the idols. How do you get people to see the idols? You know, oh my goodness, that's what I've been worshiping. That good thing has become a God thing. And so that's, and it's an overview of the Bible as, as we, uh, as we unpack idolatry through scripture. And this is, um, uh, uh, Philippians, which again is about joy in suffering. You know, there's Paul in prison, but he's a man of such joy. How do you get that? So just great on discipleship. Discipleship explored. It's uh, a good follow up for believers. So yeah. last drawing here. Here we go. Right Oh, Matthew Skitstat. Right, Matthew. Would you like, Matthew? Can I just finish with one verse just on how I mobilize people? Let's turn to it. Can we just do that? Otherwise, I'll just feel terrible that I haven't done. Then you close off. But okay. can we turn, please? Otherwise, what will happen? I'll get on the plane and I'll be in agony. I've not given you this verse. So this is my key teaching verse for confidence for people. Uh, particularly in persecution. Can you turn to Acts 17? Brothers and sisters, I've just got to do this, then I'll go back to England and you can thank God for the War of Independence. So let's, <laughs> let's just do it. Now, I use this with 2 Corinthians 4, 1 to 6 all the time because here's the key. You've got to give people confidence. So the confidence is we preach Christ, God opens blind eyes. He did it for us, he can do it for them. The confidence is the grace of God, whether you accept or reject me, uh, it doesn't that that doesn't make me valuable. What makes me valuable is 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 um, Christ died for me. And then thirdly, so, uh, uh, as we come here, sovereignty. Have a look down. Now, if they get this, it transforms their confidence. Uh, Acts seventeen twenty four. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. So He is the Creator. And he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He is the sustainer. Thirdly, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in, his his in history and the boundaries of their lands. Thirdly, he is the ruler. So God is the creator, sustainer and ruler. If that is the case, what is his plan for the world? Next verse, verse 27. God did this. So they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So God divinely organizes who I sit next to on the plane, who my neighbors are, who my work colleagues are. He has put them there because he's the evangelist. Now, once you believe that, it transforms your confidence. 
So we've just had some neighbours move in and they think they're in London to work for Shell. They're not. They're in London to meet me. They live opposite me. And I'm the most important person they know because I know Jesus. So I hopped over the road to see them, welcomed them. But it's great. God's put them there to meet me because he's the sustainer creator and he's the ruler and he's put them there. Now, can I tell you, brothers and sisters, if people get that, it transforms their confidence because the plan of history is people meet Jesus. And once they get it, I find they're mobilized wonderfully. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast. For more gospel-centered resources, visit thegospelcoalition.org.